And Lord God, we pray that this morning for some of us, and maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, that we would find what, or maybe better said, who we're looking for. That our time together would serve to awaken us to the God who loves us and who's for us and who's searching us out. Open our eyes, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. There was a baby camel who looked up at his mom and said, Mom, why do we have these big furry paws on our feet? And she looked at him and said, well, it's so that our feet, so that we don't sink into the sand as we walk across the desert. And he looked back at his mom and said, oh, okay. Mom, why do we have these big eyelashes? And she said, well, son, it's so that the sand, as it blows across the desert and we're journeying so that the sand doesn't blow into our eyes. And he looks up at her and says, oh, okay. And he said, Mom, what's the deal with this really big, strange hump on our backs? She says, well, son, that's so that we can take long journeys across the desert and we don't need water and we're able to keep going and going and going. And he said, oh, okay, so, so Mom, if I'm tracking with you, We have these paws, big paws, so that we don't sink into the sand. She said, yeah. And we have these eyelashes so that the sand doesn't blow into our eyes. And she said, you got it, son. And we have this big hump for those long journeys across the desert. And she says, you've got it. And he looks up at his mom and says, well, if that's the case, why in the world are we in the Denver Zoo? (laughs) I think that maybe we can relate on some level. (laughs) That we have all of the DNA of freedom, and yet we often find ourselves in confinement. Uh, We have everything in us cries out that we were designed for something more and something bigger and something better, and yet we look at our lives sometimes, and our lives are defined by a fear that we can't get over, a guilt that we can't shake free of, and a despair that seems so prevalent that it defines our everyday reality. (laughs) Yeah, we we look around, we look at ourselves, we look at at our own hearts and our own souls and the desires within us when we go, yeah, I was was made for freedom. All of us know it. It's a transcendent human reality. We know that we were designed for freedom, and yet we also know that there's things in our life that keep us enslaved. There's things in our life that confine us. There's even decisions that we've made that turn that more and more into a reality. So yeah, yeah, we look and we go, I've got these feet and I've got this hump and I've got these eyelashes. Well, why in the world? Why in the world am I in the zoo? I'm glad you asked that question. Would you open with me to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. And Jesus in a 
in a story form, in a parable form, is going to, in a sense, answer that question. Last week, we started a series we're calling Freeway, where we're taking the next few weeks and we're journeying through one of the greatest stories ever told by one of the greatest storytellers to ever walk the face of the planet. It's a story of the prodigal sons, or the prodigal father, if you'd like. Prodigal simply means recklessly lavish, and Jesus tells this story to a diversified group. There's some Pharisees that are um, teachers of the law, and they're prominent theologians in the day, and they're looking at Jesus and asking him, Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you spending intimate, intentional time with people that we all know you should avoid? And we should avoid. And Jesus, if you're the the holy one, the teacher, you of all people should keep your distance from people like that. And instead of unpacking didactically 12 reasons that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, he tells three stories. And remember, Kenneth Bailey, I I talked about this last week, Kenneth Bailey suggested, he's a great New Testament scholar who spent 40 years teaching in Lebanon, suggests that parables are um, intended to be stories that we sort of climb up inside of and explore. Uh, They're they're ways for us to um, try on a new reality. And so as we read this story this morning, I want to invite you in, not just to hear it, but to see yourself in it. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to him, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey to a far-off country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens in that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs." And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, we're going to dive sort of deep into this section of Scripture this morning. And as we do that, I want to point out the beginning of the story because it's really, really important to set the stage for all that goes on over the next few weeks. Here's how the story begins. There's two sons, and the younger son says to his father, Give me the share of my, of the property. It's really interesting. As Jesus tells this story, there's a number of words he could have chosen to use for the younger son's desire. In fact, the best word to depict what's going on is actually avoided. Most scholars would say intentionally avoided. Um, It would be the word inheritance. That's what he's asking for. He's asking for that which is his, the inheritance, the, 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 the house that his father has built. He wants it, but he doesn't use that word. In the Greek, it would be the word kleronomia, but he uses the word wisa, which means wealth or riches or money. See, because here's the deal. Here's the deal. The younger son knows that along with inheritance comes responsibility comes 
the desire to step into the stream that your father has started and continue the work that your father's doing. See, what the younger son wants is wealth or riches without responsibility. We have a word for it. It's called entitlement. We want the stuff without any strings attached. It's exactly where he's at. It's interesting, if you continue to read, there's this wordplay going on where they're intentionally avoiding this word inheritance. And so he says, give me my share of the oisa or of the wealth that's coming to me. And it says that the father divided his, what, property only, it's not what it says. It's not the same word. It's actually the word in the Greek, in the original text, it's the word bios. Which is where we get our word, any guesses? Bio, yeah, it's where we get our word. It's really crazy. No, it's where we, where we get our word bi- biology or the study of life. Biography, it's a story of a life, right? And so I want my share of the wealth and the father says, I'll give you your share of my life. And even in the beginning, we start to see this tension. I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of questions about a lot of things in this text. Uh, My first question, just as I was sitting down with my notebook like I normally do on a Sunday night, and I'm just jotting down thoughts, and my first thought that came to me was, each of us have a share. That's That's a true thing about you and about me. That because of the Father's goodness, we are born with a quote-unquote share. We're, We're given the gift of life. That it has value. And now, it has the most value when it's attached to the Father, but you have the choice of what you're going to do with your quote unquote share. Are you going to use it in the Father's presence, in the Father's house, or are you going to, like the younger son, like many of us do, like all of us have, at some point said, I'll take my share, I'll take my wealth, I'll take my life, my, my section of your bios, and I'll go to the far off land. We all have a share. But we see something, I think, more poignant and more interesting about the father. I mean, he didn't take too many parenting classes, did he? I mean, at some point, you've got to put your foot down with your kids, don't you? You should draw some parameters around what your kids can do with the property that you're going to give them. I mean, if he's taken any courses on writing a will, he should know that you can decide to put certain things in place so your kids don't blow all your money. And he doesn't. He just says, yes, I'll divide my life. I'll give you the money. This is your choice to make. What are you going to do with this life that you have, with the shares that are yours? 
See, when the younger son says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance, when uh, Kenneth Bailey went around and he went to all these different villages in the Middle East, villages that haven't changed in thousands of years, he started to ask these people. He read them this story and said, what do you think? And these tribes people, they, they almost tore their clothes and said, the younger son can't do that. It, we, we don't have space in our society to, to say to the father, to the owner of the estate, give me mine. It's saying, I wish you were dead. It's, it's saying, you're better off to me dead. You're worth more to me dead than you are alive. It's saying, hey, dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want anything to do with you. Which makes it all the more interesting that the father responds and says, okay, I'll give you your share of my life. Now, now, we're just going to take a quick aside, a segue, a theological segue for a few moments, and if that isn't your gig, I'll invite you back in about five minutes, okay? But I'd encourage you to think about these things because they're really important. In theological circles, it's the debate over quote-unquote over quote-unquote free will. Do you and I have the ability to make choices in life? Choices that really actually matter. Choices that make a difference. In the first part of the 16th century, uh, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, wrote a book entitled Bondage of the Will, and in that book he argued that we don't have free will. And many people have taken that and they've run with it in the sense to say that the choices that we make uh, don't matter. In fact, there's no choices really to be made. The only problem with that is that you and I both know that's not true. And I would argue the problem with that is that's not what he was actually saying. Uh, J.I. Packer, in his foreword to that great book, and I, I'd suggest that you read it, it's wonderful, says this. He says, a man's total inability to save himself and the sovereignty of divine grace and his salvation, that was what Luther was affirming when he denied free will. That's what Luther's getting after when he writes that whole book. We cannot save ourselves. To that, I say yes. And amen, that that if not for the grace of God and the work of Jesus, we are doomed. But please hear me, free will does not mean we have zero choices in life, and it does not mean that our choices do not matter. In fact, you can't get too far in the scriptures before you recognize that, that people play a significant role in the story of God. In fact, You can't get to chapter 3 in the first book without recognizing that God has given us the ability to make choices. And he says to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, hi, my name's God. Um, Welcome to my world. I created it. You're in it. And I, I put you in paradise and you have one job. Just don't eat that tree. And what do they do? They eat the tree, right? This is not an anomaly. This happens all throughout scriptures. If you fast forward a few books to 1 Samuel chapter 8, you see that nation of Israel, God has risen them up, God's called them out, God's formed them and shaped them, and he says, listen, I've designed you that I would be your king. So you don't need to be like all the other 
kingdoms. You don't need to be like all the other nations. I'm your king. And they say to him, that's a good idea, but we want an actual king that we can see and that we can touch and that we can be ruled by. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, we see the Lord says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. I mean, he said to Samuel, this is my will. This is my desire. This is my command that I would be their king. And he goes, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But will you say it with me, church? They have rejected me from being king over them. Um, You hear these haunting words of Jesus as he's marching towards his death and as he's looking over Jerusalem, he turns to his disciples and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I longed, I longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hand gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Does God always get everything he wants? Well, it depends on what we mean by that question. In this case, Jesus wanted to do something that people were unwilling to do. Now, could God have reached down and like a divine puppet master, pulled a few strings and made it so that the people of, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, did not kill the prophets and did not reject their Messiah? Well, sure. It turns out, though, he wants something more than control. He wants something more than to just get everything that he wants every moment of the time. He, he wants love. He wants a people who would respond to him. It's why the greatest commandment is just that. Not an obligation, but a command that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our mind. And the question is, are we willing? Will we go there with God? So last week we asked the question, why in the world, if God is so good, do really, really terrible things happen? It's because he's given human beings choices. And sometimes we make choices that go against what his desires are. That's why. That's why we have things like abuse and addiction and affairs. It's not because those things are God's will. It's because God's will is that you and I would, by the power of his spirit, step into a relationship with him and love him with our whole beings. And sometimes people say, no, thank you. I want nothing to do with that. See, if a driver gets in a car and drives drunk and kills somebody, we do not go back to the government that issued the driver's license and say, it's your fault. In the same way that evil, because God gives us the choice to love him and step into relationship with him, is not the fault of God. It's the fault of humanity. It's what we see. Okay, invitation back in. It's what we see when the Father says, I'll give you your share. I'll I'll let you use it as you see fit. I would love for you to use it here, but if you're going to go, then you're going to go. And it's what he does. He goes to what we would call the far 
country. And here's a big idea that we're going to circle our hearts and our minds around this morning, or that we've been circling our hearts and our minds around this morning, and it's this, that our fight for freedom often leads us outside of our Father's favor. That desire, and that's what's in this younger son. I want the adventure. I want things my way. I don't want the confinement of being in my father's house and having my father's expectations and my father's rules. Does this sound familiar to any parents in the room? And it's this desire to say, I'm free, that often leads us to the place of, this didn't turn out the way I thought it would. This didn't turn out the way I hoped it would. See, when you and I think about freedom, there's two things that primarily come to mind. The first is, I'm going to pursue pleasure. It's this longing to fill our lives with good things, with bright things, with shiny things, things that will make us happy. How many of you have ever said, I'm going to make the decisions that will make me happy? No one's heard somebody say that? Yeah. I'm going to do what makes me happy. Well, what's this is desire for freedom. This is chasing after the greener pasture. The other thing that drives us, or the other freedom that we long for, is the aversion from pain. So we'll chase things that either lead us towards pleasure or away from pain. In our mind, those things are freedom. It's interesting, though, when you look at the teaching of Jesus, if you just flip over one book to John and go to chapter 8, here's what Jesus says. It says, and Jesus said to him, to the Jews who have believed him, if you, will you say this word with me? It's really important. Abide. Literally, it means to make your home within. To make your home within. Now, if we lay that over the story of the son who's leaving home, Jesus says, well, if you make your home in in my word, you're truly my disciples. In In my truth, in my reality, in my way, and you will then know the truth. So as you practice this, you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. It will set you free. Jesus goes on to say in verse 36 of that same section of Scripture, so whomever the Son sets free is free indeed. Will you look up at me for a second? The freedom that you and I are looking for is not found in the pursuit of pleasure or in aversion to pain, the freedom that you and I are, are looking for is not found in a lack of accountability or a, a desire to do whatever we please. The freedom that you and I are looking for is found in the God-given, grace-driven ability to love the things that God has called us to love. That's the freedom that every single human soul is looking for. And ironically, ironically, the younger son, because the father gives him choices, says, I will choose to take my share and I'll go to the far country. It's this picture of rejection of everything his father says is good. 
It's a picture of saying, I know that this is the DNA on your estate, but I'm flowing against that stream. And hey, 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 before we start thinking about all the people we can picture who have done this, can we just recognize that we are they? That none of us, this is the story not of just a younger son, it's the story of Israel, it's the story of humanity. That we've all said at one point in time to the Father, give me my share. And I'm going to go and I'm going to blaze my own trail and I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to be captain of my own ship and I'm going to be master of my own domain and I'm going to get mine. How'd that work out for you? See, when we go against the design that God has woven into our beings, we end up in pain. The younger son epitomizes this perfectly. It's a picture that is all too familiar and that many of us know all too well. Here's what happens. There's really, I know I'm going to invite you into three sort of characteristics of the far-off country. Here's what it looks like. Not many days later, the younger son, so notice he has this plan that he executes. He gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. Um, not only physically away from his father, but spiritually away from his father. It's a rejection. It's cutting himself off at the roots and everything his father ingrained into him, I'm going a different direction. And he what? Squandered. Um, Diascorpizo in the Greek, it's two words put together. One means to thoroughly do something and the other means to scatter like a farmer would scatter a seed. Only he's doing it with wealth. (laughs) He's doing it with his money. Um, You get this picture in the younger son's squandering in the far-off land that there's this sense of desperation within him. There's this picture of, I've got to do something to make my life worth living. It's life in the far-off country. It begins with squandering. And this feels pretty good for a time. I mean, sometimes Christians sound really dumb when they're like, oh, that, that, that type of a lifestyle is just, there is no pleasure in that. And the people living it are going, really? Because it feels pretty good. And I think we need to acknowledge that for a time, this type of a lifestyle can feel pretty good. It's just the morning after, it feels a little bit empty, doesn't it? And it's the week after week, after month, after month, after year, after year, where we start to go, I think I was designed for more. This isn't getting the job done. This isn't filling me up. See, here's the big distinction. Inside of the Father's house, we get to use the Father's stuff, the shares that we have to enjoy. In fact, that's the way God designed you, that you would enjoy this world, this life that he's given you. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, says, As for the rich, people that have a lot in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain, the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to what? Enjoy. See, inside the Father's house, you can enjoy the things that you have. Outside of the Father's house, here's a big distinction, you have to use them. Inside the Father's house, they can be enjoyed. Outside the Father's house, they've got to be used. They will be worshipped. This idea of squandering is searching for something for the younger son to fill his life up. So, inside, love can be enjoyed. Outside, love will be worshipped. You tell me if this isn't the society that we live in. Inside of the Father's house, wealth can be enjoyed. Outside of the Father's house, wealth will be worshipped. Inside of the Father's house, marriage can be enjoyed. Outside of the Father's house, marriage will be worshipped. Inside the Father's house, a family can be enjoyed. Outside of the Father's house, a family will be worshipped. And eventually, it will lead us wanting that we're trying to use our stuff to fill our souls, and it turns out our souls are eternal. So no amount of stuff ever fills it. And the pressure we put on these things that we were intended to be enjoyed and end up being used actually crushes them and it eventually crushes us. The only love that can sustain, the only love that can sustain you is the love of a father who created you. And when we leave the provision, the favor, the goodness of our Father, we are stepping away from the very thing that our souls were created for, that our souls long for, and that nothing else can fill. Nothing. And so he enters into this place of, of squandering. Here's the second thing that happens to him. He went to the, and he spent everything, A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. (laughs) All this whole week I've been saying, and a severe salmon arose in that country. I'm like, I'm so glad. Can you just picture just a ravenous salmon? Like, okay. A famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. Here's the picture. Here's the picture. As he moves from this place of squandering to a place of scarcity, So he's using all of his stuff in order to fill his life, in order to try to get the things that he thinks he wants, and his soul knows that that, his life can't be that vacant. And eventually he comes to this place of realizing, my stuff is wearing out. My pocketbook is running thin. My resources are starting to dwindle. Have you ever been there? I saw the pictures on the news of people in Florida lining up at a gas station that was slowly running out of gas, thinking, how in the world are we getting out of here? How, how is our life going to be sustained? You can go to the same picture in the grocery store when the hurricane was going to hit. The funniest picture I saw was that the entire grocery store was cleaned out except the vegan aisle. That was full of food. Okay. You do with that what you will. 
But it's this picture, right, of our stuff is running out, our resources are running low, what are we going to do with it? See, in the Father's house, the shares go a lot further than they do outside of it. Turns out the Father's estate is sort of an all-inclusive type of situation, that he cares for the people underneath his provision. He gives good things continually. And when we try to take what he's given and use it outside of his provision, it turns out we don't have enough to sustain the life we know we were designed to live. And scarcity, it leads us all, all, all. Will you just lean in a little bit to this place of desperation, to this place of fear, that my resources are dwindling, my hope is dwindling, and my fear is rising. So I need people to tell me that I'm loved. I need my stuff to earn the approval of others. I've left the place of eternal love and I've moved to the far off country where I need to be filled up by finite people who can never give me what an eternal God designed me to get from him. And so we start to scramble. So any guy or any girl who will show us some attention will do, even if they don't care for us, even if they don't have our best in mind. We need that, and in our moment of scarcity, we'll go anywhere to get it. We'll do anything. Uh, The sun goes, listen, I haven't eaten a pig in my entire life, but I'll eat what they're eating. I'll care for them. I'll become unclean. I will go into their pig bent. I will go to the nth degree in order to get something that'll fill me up. And some of you are in that place this morning. You're in this place of scrambling. You're in this place of scarcity. Will you look up at me? Here's why. It's because you were created by an eternal God who loves you ruthlessly and beautifully and passionately. And when you walked away from him, you walked away with a void that only he can fill. And when you've run out of resources, it's an invitation to us to turn our eyes back to his design, to his goodness, to his creation to go, all right, the reason that I'm living in a place of scarcity is because I was designed by a God who has every resource and I was meant to be in relationship with him. So he gets frantic and fear sets in. Will I be enough? Will I have enough? And he's running out of resources and there's nothing he can do. And so what does he do? So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Um, Here's the story of humanity, friends. Designed to be in relationship with a loving, good, eternal God. We walk away out of his estate, out of his favor, with the resources he's given us, but as we said, they start to run out. We squander them, they start to run out, and we move into a place of slavery. Squandering, scarcity, slavery. The scriptures are going to be really clear with us that every single person is a slave to something. All of us are. Uh, In Romans chapter 6, Paul writing um, uh, his magnum opus of the Christian faith says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? 
Now, all of us, none of us get off the hook in this. We all are found enslaved, quote-unquote, or hired out, if you will, to something or to someone. See, last week we said that lostness is relational. It's being outside of the Father's care, outside of the Father's provision, outside of the Father's house. Before it's judicial, it's you're out of relationship with God before it's you've done a number of things wrong. The same thing is true of slavery. It's you're outside of the provision of your Father and you're under the thumb of something that can never fill you and never give you life. You need to prove your worth You need to earn your value. And hey, 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 isn't it true? If we don't know the arms of our Father, we'll settle for the arms of anyone. And we'll find ourselves, just like the younger son does, in this place of struggling to believe, of living in fear, of going, is there a way out? So where are you at in the story? Where are you at? Because we're all slaves to something. We're all slaves to someone. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes about his life, he doesn't say, I'm free with no attachments and no accountability and no responsibility. That's not his view of freedom. In fact, his view of freedom is, I'm dead! And it's awesome. He says this. He said, I've been crucified. I've, I've, I've died to the far off country. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I love this. I've been crucified and I live by faith. That's the Christian life. That's the invitation die to the dream of the far-off country. You see, sometimes for the future to come alive, a dream needs to die. And the dream of the far-off country, that that might be enough, needs to die in order for us to come alive by faith in the Son of God who loved you and who loved me enough to give himself for us. So here's my big question for you. Look up at me for a moment, okay? And we'll land the plane here. Is the posture of your life either give me mine or is it I am yours? Is it give me mine or I am yours? Here's what's true about every single person in this space. The freedom that we're really looking for is found in the God that we're often running from. The resources that God's given you might be enough to sustain you for a time, but the only thing that can sustain you eternally is the love of a father who says, you are my son, or you are my daughter. 
And sometimes God brings us to the end to bring us back to our God. And he does it out of love, and he does it because he cares for us. And so I just want to walk you through in the next few minutes that we have as our, we close our time. Just some time to process. So here's my question for you. Now we put my slide up, please. Here's my question for you. And you can write it in that little area below. What have you done with your shares? What have you done with this life, this gift that God has given you? Is your posture, give me mine, or I am yours? We'll talk about this a little bit next week, but some of the hardest journey in life that you and I will walk through is really coming to a place of owning what we've done with some of our shares and then walking through shame. To go, yeah, God, I've, I've, I've blown it. I've, I've absolutely run away from your estate, run away from your way. I've cut myself off at the root from you, my good father who, who loves me. And oftentimes, and these are diagnostic, that leads us to this place of what scares me? What am I afraid of? Because man, inside the Father's house, the famine will hurt you, but it won't kill you. Outside, the famine has every ability to take you down. That's a scary place to be. What have you done with your shares? Where are you going to go with your shame? And what scares are you carrying? One of my favorite movies, Judge Me If You Want, is The Shawshank Redemption. It came out in 1994. And in this movie, Andy Dufresne is wrongfully imprisoned and spends a number of years digging a tunnel to finally get out. And his journey out is through 500 yards of sewage. Till he finally steps into freedom. Till he finally steps into the open. You know what? I think Shawshank gets it right. Because the quest for freedom, the quest that we're all on for freedom, only goes one direction. It only goes through our pain. It only goes through our brokenness. It only goes through our shame into the light of his grace. There's no shortcuts. Nobody gets around it. Nobody goes a different direction. This is not a choose-your-own-adventure. This is through your sin, through your brokenness, through your shame, through your pain, through your regret, and into his 
grace. Friends, this is the journey that God is inviting you to go on. Will you go with him? So Father, like the younger son, we've We've squandered, we lived in scarcity. Some of us in this place, in this room right now, are still enslaved to thoughts, things that we think will satisfy, to desires we think if we can fulfill them, they'll be enough. Some of us in this place are still in slavery. And Lord, I pray that today, would you break those chains? Would you invite us through the junk of our lives into the glory of your grace? We pray it as sons and daughters of the Most High God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.